Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Theory. Joining me as always is Adam Harstead. You can find him on Twitter at Adam Harstead and of course at footballguys.com. You can also find me at footballguys.com at Matt Waldman. Today we're going to talk a little bit about some running back profiles that may be valuable in Dynasty. Also quarterback profiles that also can have some value there. And um, a couple other things we'll see as they, you know, as they evolve. But Adam, you know, let's let's start off with some of these running back profiles because you know certainly injuries have been a big part of that. And yeah, I guess the part that we're going to talk about, I know that I that I didn't mention is we're going to talk a little bit about Nick Chubb. I guess that's maybe that's a sore spot with me that I've kind of avoided wanting to, to have much of a conversation about this week because it's just sad. But uh, but we'll we'll get into that and we'll get into maybe some cool things about his career um, as we go on. But in light of his injury, we've got Jerome Ford, we've got Kareem Hunt, you know, we can talk a little bit about that, but we also have players who kind of inherited from a fallout like Cam Akers and Sean McVay having a fallout and Kyron Williams, you know, coming to the forefront. So, you know, what are your thoughts on players like Kyron Williams and and Jerome Ford and anybody else that kind of fits a profile for Dynasty? Yeah, I mean, I was contrasting, I think, the way I play Dynasty with the way you play. Uh, obviously, you are evaluating players. You're, you're putting the jeweler's loop on, and you're saying, you know, this is a talent that I want to invest in. This is a talent that this guy has a skill set that I want on my Dynasty roster. Um, talent's much more of a black box for me. Uh, so instead, I tend to look in terms of uh, profiles. And I was kind of talking about this with Drake London a couple weeks ago, um, where there are just certain clusters of characteristics that historically you know these these are valuable clusters of characteristics to have on your dynasty roster and i try to get as many people in those clusters as possible and and as few people in the like historically not as valuable clusters as possible and um it's been a you know the last couple weeks have been um pretty good for one of my favorite profiles which is um Young running backs with, you know, moderate draft capital, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, maybe even undrafted, who um, don't really have a clear path to relevance, you know, especially if they're stuck behind like a clear established starter. Um, but the coaching staff still really likes them. And, and you can tell not just from what the coaching staff is saying, but from the actions that they're taking that they like them. Um, and Jerome Ford is one of those guys coaching staff has Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, but they're still saying good things about Ford. They're still making sure to keep him on the roster. I mean, I think they had a chance to put him on the practice squad and they and then they kept him on the active roster, which says a lot because those roster spots are valuable. Um, and so I see that and I say, you know, I don't know anything about Jerome Ford, but historically, guys like Jerome Ford are kind of the guys you want on the end of your bench in Dynasty Leagues. Joshua Kelly, similar guy he was i think a fourth round pick in 2020 um he's been hanging around the end of the roster and the Chargers have brought in a couple people to try and unseat him um isaiah spiller whatever kelly keeps holding off all competitors um looking pretty good when he plays um jalen warren was another guy and then kyron williams uh, um, obviously i think is the biggest beneficiary of this profile where you know, the Rams drafted him and he was injured his rookie year and the Rams still made a point of keeping him around and talking him up. And it was clear that they liked Kyron Williams and they were they were in the Kyron Williams business. So I wanted to be in the Kyron Williams business, too. Um, you know, I don't know if these players are good. I don't know if these players are not good. I know that the teams think they're good. And so I the teams are the ones who give out snaps and playing time. Um, so yeah, I like usually I, I try to have two or three or four spots on my roster devoted to these young running backs who maybe are not like the most fun, the sexiest names. Maybe they don't have a lot of hype behind them. Uh, maybe they don't have a lot of believers, but one of the key believers is, is the team itself. And um, usually they're available at a discount or usually for free off of the street because there's not a clear path to relevance. There's a Najee Harris or a Nick Chubb or an Austin Eckler or a Cam Akers in the way. Um, but over time, a lot of times, it, it's not, it doesn't usually hit as often as, as it has been hitting in recent weeks. But over time, this is a profile that, that often leads to basically free starters in fantasy football. I think, it's a, I think it's a good subject matter because it kind of, 
you can talk about it from a heuristic example or, or you know, kind of a model of a player and then you can also look at where the equivalencies are from a talent perspective because yeah you're right a lot of these guys aren't high-end physical talents you know Kyron Williams is slow he's not very big he doesn't break a ton of like meaningful tackles if you're gonna from a from a standpoint of grading not like all ta all broken tackle at um, all broken tackles are meaningful on the field but from the level of like when you're judging talent maybe you're gonna get a little bit delineated a little bit more between you know certain types of tackle attempts but um the fact of the matter is is you know brandon angela last night on our podcast going deep he talked about kyron williams and the biggest thing that he stated that i think stuck out in my mind was he doesn't make a lot of mistakes and when you start thinking about these players who make roster spots that maybe the team otherwise wouldn't afford but they're afraid of losing them it's because they play mistake-free football relative to um, more physically talented players or they play low you know it's a low error football maybe is a better way to state it because everybody's making mistakes in games but it's the you know ronald jones errors of fumbling the ball dropping passes um missing holes is different than maybe kyron williams having a, a couple of drops in a game but that being unusual for for him um and i think that's why they liked kyron williams so much another player who fits that model that i would add to that list would be Chris Brooks of Miami, who the, the the Dolphins made room to keep on their active roster, the rookie undrafted free agent who can catch, who can run, who's six one two thirty five, a little different than what they they look for. They look for speed, but he's but he's more you know initial quickness and power, and the fact that they they've had a you know they've gone through Ahmed, Mostert, Wilson, those guys are still part of that rotation Wilson on IR Brooks still being kept on the active roster tells you that they that was important to them to to hold on to so I mean I think a guy like that I would still say Keontae Ingram is a guy that could potentially be that way just because you look at James Conner and he's still sitting you know they didn't draft anybody he was an un, he was a either a sixth or seventh round pick at best and they were all talking about we were all talking about you know benjamin last year at about this time and the guy who's the number two and has been the number two since you know benjamin left town has been counting ingram even if the production hasn't been there yet um but he's only getting a handful of touches so i mean guys like you know there's a lot of guys like that you could even argue ty chandler as much as i'm someone who isn't extremely high on his talent even though they added Cam Akers, he's a guy that's still sticking around. They've wanted to make a, they've made it a point to keep him. And, and I would probably even say, you know, and people would expect me to say this because I've, I was really high on Trey Sermon, but the fact that the Eagles had a tough decision of who to keep, um, there were teams that inquired about trading for him. The Browns were looking at him with the J Nick Chubb injury before the Colts snapped him up, which means the Colts snapped him to me the Colts snapped them up because you know they look at what their roster is right now and they also are considering options of people who can contribute if they were to trade Jonathan Taylor can we get someone who might be able to help um you know fill in in the in the lineup and at least be a part of a rotation and maybe have a little bit more of a future there so there's a lot of guys out there in addition to who you mentioned that fit that profile and I think for most of those guys they either make low they're either it's low error football um and i would say maybe with sermon it's more that um he's made he's made some errors in the preseason but i think it's more of a when you have a higher expectation due to your draft capital and it doesn't work out people point out the errors a lot when in fact their error rates aren't much different than some of the guys who are the lower round guys who ascend their way up the depth chart if Trey Sermon were a sixth round pick people would be more intrigued with him the fact that he was a third round pick um 
you know, and expected to be the starter and didn't work out, it's a, you know, people look at it from a negative standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I like, I tend to focus, I'm a very impatient uh, manager in Dynasty and I turn the bottom of my roster. So I tend to focus more on guys who are like one away on the depth chart. Um, Or like Jerome Ford was an exception because obviously he's behind both um, Chubb and Hunt. But Hunt was in the last year of his contract. The writing was on the wall that, um, that he was probably not coming back. And also Cleveland had shown a willingness to platoon backs so I viewed him as one Kareem Hunt away from a committee, possibly, yes. with Nick Chubb. Um, so that was still the one away. Um, like, I, I like Sermon, um, but I like him more on waivers in my watch list yep. because there's just – it. if something happened to DeAndre Swift – I mean, we saw something happened to Kenneth Gainwell. DeAndre Swift was next one up. If something happens to DeAndre Swift, am I confident that Trey Sermon is the next one up? No, it, it could happen. Um, but I'd rather have him on speed dial than than um, taking up a bench spot. Um, Chris Evans is another way. You mentioned it's a very crowded, and I think it's it's a big show of faith from Miami that they did commit the roster spot to him. But also, you know, if Mostert gets hurt, that's a messy situation. They've got um, a chain, or I don't know how it's pronounced, a chain yeah. still on the roster, and they've got um, Jeff Wilson will probably be back at some time this year maybe. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's a good difference between waiver and, and, a, and a roster spot. I, I definitely agree with that. That makes sense. You know, unless you're... I do like um, Chris Evans on the Bengals is another guy who um, everybody's kind of ready to move on from except for the Bengals. You know, they draft Chase Brown this year. They've got Travion Williams in the mix, but yeah. Evans just keeps hanging around and hanging around. And I don't really know anything about him as a player, but usually when I'm seeing that pattern of roster moves from a team, it suggests there might be something there. Rico Doddle is another name that would probably fit very well within this matrix, even though um, you still have um, Vaughn. Yeah, yeah, Deuce Vaughn. You're seeing that Doddle's getting a fair share of looks, and you can see a clear-cut role that Vaughn won't get as a result of that. For sure. Yeah, It's it's kind of like Josh Kelly with Elijah Dotson getting a little bit of you know a little bit of gadget dust sprinkled on there whereas i think it's the same thing that would happen in in dallas if um tony pollard got hurt so so let's talk about nick chubb a little bit certain in the scope of his career you know the the most popular statistical um point that they that the the national broadcasts like to bring up whenever there's a game is that he he's averaging over five yards per carry during his career and that the the three back prominent backs that have done that are jamal charles him and bo jackson so and jim brown and jim brown yes yeah yes and they jim brown's got it's like almost assumed that everybody like they just stop showing jim brown a lot nowadays with that but like there was a time that in that spot for nick chubb years ago when they would show that stat it was Jim Brown, Bo Jackson, and Edron James, you know, until Edron James got hurt and then has his career got longer and longer and he still played well, but, you know, wasn't the the superstar physical talent that he once was. Chubb, you know, let's presuming he's going to need two surgeries apparently to repair what he has going on with his knee. It's if you're playing the odds, it's safe to say that his career if it isn't over, his career as a starter, an unquestioned starter, top 12, top 25 fantasy starter is over. Um, you know, so in that perspective, you know, hopefully it isn't. Hopefully he bucks all the odds and somehow, you know, we learned that the that the second surgery really, it was a necessary thing, but not as serious to the, has it to the impact of his career. But all hopes and denial aside um you know when we think about his career is he is he someone that you would look at and say he has a good argument for the hall of fame would you argue with that he was is a hall of fame back and if you would why if you wouldn't why not yeah hall of fame um i've spent a lot of time thinking and arguing about and uh, Drennan said every Hall of Fame argument needs to be prefaced by a clarification are we talking ought or are we talking is are we saying 
will Nick Chubb make the Hall of Fame or are we saying should he make the Hall of Fame? Because they're two very different questions with two very different answers. Will he make the Hall of Fame? No, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame. Uh, should he? I would not personally put him in. And I, I think that he is of a caliber as a runner with a lot of these other players who are making the Hall of Fame. But to me, it's about um, both the quality of the player, where I think he meets that threshold, and then also the total impact on his team and on the game. Um, and I don't think he meets that threshold. Uh, I think he was as good as Jamal Charles, differently good, but you know, I think as a rough approximation, I think he was as good as Marshawn Lynch, um, differently good, but as a rough approximation. I think he was as good as Trell Davis, who's in the Hall of Fame, and I think deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I have argued in the past deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but those players, I think, had more impact. Jamal Charles did it for longer. Uh, Marshawn Lynch um, did it for longer, and he had you know, the, the signature moments that I think Chubb lacked. Uh, Trell Davis did not do it for longer, but his impact on the league, I think, was seismic, cataclysmic, um, just in terms of um, the awards and the honors and the recognition and, and the players he was winning them over. He, you know, he's beating out Barry Sanders for MVPs and Offensive Player of the Year awards. Um, so I would not put Chubb in. I, to me, there's no question at all that he had the talent to get there. Um, but he wasn't utilized in a way that I think would have would have made that a realistic possibility. He spent too much time getting split. Um, he spent too much time on a bad Browns franchise, never really had the hype or recognition until later in his career. Um, and I think people like to, you know, poo-poo the analytics, but I think the analytics has kind of been a, a reasonable part of that in that um, as we're getting more and more sophisticated models for rushing production, um, it's really illustrating Chubb for the outlier that he is in terms of, of rushing value added year over year, outperforming expectations. Like he's the only guy that's doing that where, where Derrick Henry will have some good years, but he's not consistently every year one of the league leaders in yardage over expectation the way that Chubb was. Um, I like him. I, I really like the player. Um, there are a lot of guys who are not in the Hall of Fame yet who I'd put in over him. There's a lot of guys who are in the Hall of Fame who I don't think I would not personally have put in the Hall of Fame, but I still would have over Chubb. Um, someone like Jerome Bettis. I think Chubb was a better runner than Bettis, although Bettis is a little bit underrated now. Um, I think that the things he was good at kind of get denigrated. A, a lot of um, high percentage conversions and things like that. Um, but even still, I don't think Bettis would be in my Hall of Fame, but I, I still think I'd rather have him in than Chubb. So did you say you would have Jamal Charles in the Hall of Fame? I would not. He'd be yeah. – um, there's a couple guys who are just kind of in that tier where I, I get the argument for it, but I just don't think they had enough impact. And honestly, I think running back is a little bit overrepresented. You know, we talked – I believe we talked about yeah. um, the running back contract demands and and we're saying like – I mean, yeah, it feels like they're being disrespected, but they're making as much money as guards. And are you saying they're more valuable than guards? And, and part of the reason it feels like they're being disrespected is historically, you know, running backs have won MVPs at a disproportionate rate. Running backs have made the Hall of Fame at a disproportionate rate. And so I kind of feel like the Hall of Fame is a little hot and heavy at the position. And, and um, I think the standard for admittance at running back is lower than it is at guard or tackle. Uh, which I don't think is necessarily just or fair. So I would not put Charles in. I wouldn't put um, guys like Sean Alexander or Priest Holmes, who I think also have a case. I wouldn't put them in. Uh, you know, Ricky Williams, Nick Chubb. There's just a lot of guys in this tier where, like, they were incredible players. It was really fun to watch them. I just don't think they had the sustained impact um, to warrant inclusion yeah and and i can get that that argument i certainly can understand that argument very very well and i think there are some cogent points with that um i would probably argue that from a from a film watching standpoint and watching how he played the game um his ability to make his blockers look good was rare 
Like he did more to set up blocks than most backs do. And he was also did more. He also spent a lot more time setting up the third level of a defense in ways that you very rarely saw. So his game, I would argue that his game was probably the most subtly excellent game that I've ever watched of a running back. Um, whereas Jim Brown just ran through people and ran past people and had an incredible, it looked like feats of incredible will. Um, he was also, you know, physically 25, 30 years ahead of everyone on the field with him. It was kind of like, it was kind of like if, if wrestling had, if Andre the Giant stayed like 20 years old and could perform drop kicks and his back wasn't bad and he could, he was agile and could chase people around the ring and do leapfrogs and do all the physical things um, and still do that for like a 10 year period of time and 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 look like a luchador you then you would probably he would be what jim brown was on a football field as a running back and when i watched nick chubb the subtlety of his game i think it's missed a lot and that's why it was probably it took a while for people to look at his game and go it took probably a good four years first four years of his career for people to look at him and go he's a great running back or he's one of the great running backs in the game today. You know, he's one of the best running backs in the game today. Whereas opposed, you could see that skill. There was a lot of evidence of that skill from the get from the jump. Um, so I understand why it's probably going to get missed and it's, you know, um, and I think that, you know, from an impact historical impact standpoint, certainly your points about Marshawn Lynch, what he did in the playoffs, you know, was a big deal. You know, Nick Chubb in the playoffs, he had two games. He averaged 4.7 yards per, per carry, 31 touches for 145 yards, and, you know, another 73 yards receiving. Didn't score a touchdown. You know, he had a receiving touchdown. That's it, two games. That's it, you know. I, I'd like to joke that I blame Baker Mayfield for fucking up Nick Nick Chubb's opportunity to have a great, um, greater career than he already had, but you know that's unfair. Um, but uh, but I will say, uh, you know, I like how you talk about it as should they and will they, and also it's the should they or will they is more than just about their actual skills on the field, um, right. but the opportunities they get to showcase those skills in big moments. If I were to have a talent level Hall of Fame, Nick Chubb would be a first ballot easily because when I look at the talent of players in terms of rare skills that I've scouted, not players in history, because there's a lot of players in history I've, I have never st studied to that level. Nick Chubb, Frank Gore, Marshawn Lynch, Edron James, and Jamal Charles would all be and and adrian peterson would all be in would be first ballot guys in terms of like skill at playing the position you know and i could go on and on i could probably name another 10 guys but they but they they each did something sean alexander no he wouldn't be there terrell davis um probably not um I and I love Terrell Davis. He would be close. He might be second ballot, but he would probably not. He was he was very good though. But um yeah. yeah. So so it's a it's I mean, a fascinating yeah discussion of where we're at. And I, I again I think the evidence supports. I I rag on yards per carry all the time. That it's just not stable. Like yeah. it's it's mostly noise. And to the extent that it's measuring anything, it's mostly measuring straight line speed. Because uh, the way you get a high yard per carry, it, it's not consistently getting a lot of yards. It's very inconsistently breaking a 60-yard run, and that brings your yard per carry up by, like, 0.3. And so um, I rag on, like, 
yards per carry, yards over expectation, because it's it's noise. The, the top guys one year are very rarely the top guys another year. And the one real exception since Jamal Charles has been Nick Chubb, who's just consistently one of the top five guys over and over and over and over and over again. And it's repeatable in a way that it, nece- it isn't necessarily repeatable for a lot of other players, even really good all-pro caliber players. There's a poster on Football Guys message boards uh, named East Bay Funk or EBF. Yeah. And he always had, um, he would he would uh, categorize players as either freaky good or sneaky good. And so you have like, Derrick Henry is freaky good. He is just a massive, fast mountain of human being who's bigger and faster than you and you can't tackle him and you can't keep up with him and he's just going to produce. And everybody who watches football for 30 seconds is going to notice Derrick Henry and say, wow, that guy's a star. Um, somebody like Nick Chubb, or um, maybe like Arian Foster, that's going to be more sneaky good, where there's nothing that's really jumping out the page. You, you know, you can watch an entire game, even a good game from one of those players, and never be like, man, that guy just imposed his will. He's, but he's consistently producing over and over and over again, and it's because of these harder-to-quantify traits, you know, the ability to set up defenders or the ability to make the right read, things that don't necessarily jump off the page. And I do agree that you know, freaky good players tend to be a little overrated. Sneaky good players tend to be a little bit underrated. Um, And that's, I think that's a shame. I don't think Nick Chubb is going to get his proper due from history. Um, Although again, people complain about analytics and running backs. And I think that's honestly going to be one of his biggest legacies is that um, his career just happened to come as analytics was like really diving into running back production and he he him and Jamal Charles were the first two guys who who jumped out as able to outproduce in a sustainable year after year after year um so yeah I I like Nick Chubb a lot I agree with you um and I agree with you you know Trell Davis was ultimately a system back like one of the greatest system backs in history yep you know he executed that system better than We've said before, Great if you player. put Barry Sanders on, you put Barry Sanders on those Denver Broncos, and Mike Shanahan's benching him after two games, <laughs> right? I don't think Barry Sanders would have done what Terrell Davis did no. on those teams. No. It was the right player at the right place at the right time. Uh, but yeah, Nick Chubb, I think, is much more transcendent. You don't need to be a certain team to get the most out of Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb is going to give you, yeah. you know, a puncher's chance no matter where he is. He needed another three years and some high-profile opportunities to for to impress most people to for the the criteria the loose criteria that we look at for what what constitutes a hall of fame player i think that's probably yeah. the the way to look at it and i think you know and that makes total sense you know um it, it's funny because i um you know you you I was I was going to counter argue about his combine because I remember his combine didn't seem that far away from Saquon Barkley, but then when I look up like the percentiles of where he was, you know his forty yard percentile that was a, the worst thing is four five two forty seventy one point six percentile of the position, um, twenty yard shuttle was fifty two point nine percent percentile, his you know where he was in the high nineties was the bench, the vertical, and the broad jump, which just shows you raw explosion, you know, that strength and explosion. From that standpoint, absolutely, 98% in the percentile in the bench, 91% percentile in the vertical, 95% percentile in the broad jump. But shuttle and three-cone, 53% percentile, three-cone, 52nd percentile. I mean, you know, what you're looking at as a player, the things that i saw with him that just blew me away was how he you know how he could read the third level and know i'm gonna ignore the i'm gonna ignore ignore the design of the play i'm gonna set it up like i'm gonna i'm going to um follow the design of a play but i know i'm reading the backside safety and i'm going to just head two steps in the direction of the side of the play and then just take it straight downhill and i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm going to make a cut with one, you know, on one player, and literally when uh, with some of the cuts he'd make, and I'd see this at Georgia all the time, the balance he had and the ability to cut, it was always in tight traffic where he would make a leaping cut, and you'd see him turn his foot 
in just the smallest way that opens your hips and he could slide across the pursuit. So if the pursuit's coming downhill at you and coming across and you're heading downhill at it, he could find a way to make a dynamic movement and then still turn his foot in midair so that when he landed, his hips were in a way that he would just veer right across the defender. And you can watch the play enough times and see him do it multiple times at Georgia and in his career in Cleveland and go, that's, he knew what he was doing. He knew where that player was. He knew that, like, where everyone else is going, you know, let me, let me work on my opening game and my middle game. Nick Chubb was like, the end game is this safety, and I'm just skipping the opening and middle game. Like, he would do things like that. Or he would he would have bad blocking in Cleveland, and Dan Hatton of the Scouting Academy and I did an hour-long video on him and would talk about how he actually would make an extra move or a second move in a manner that was clearly helping a blocker who missed his first block get the second block and then he would do then he would make a move and and a guy who it's on it's so uncommon to see that then the other guy who did that was frank gore and and frank gore still to this day every day i watch running backs to scout them for the draft and when i think about backs needing to press creases tighter i almost have to disqualify the standard of what frank gore is because even at like in his early 30s he's doing things that subtly you're just like no one does that no one presses the the crease this tight and makes a fake in this direction to set up the defenders this way and some of his some of his three four five yard gains are some of the most impressive runs i've ever seen but again it doesn't it doesn't freak people out because it's not the sizzle that people are looking for. But for someone who has spent 20 years studying running backs and every technique this closely, the subtlety of those two guys' games, it just are off the charts good. It's just, and it's, and it's, you know, so you have, but that's a lesson for people who evaluate. The more you evaluate talent, the more you're going to see high, you're going to encounter somebody who's really high end at something, and you have to learn that that's the highest end of the standard, and that just because people don't hit it doesn't mean they're not NFL caliber players. They can be really good NFL caliber players. You know, Rashad White might turn out to be a good NFL running back, um, but if you're applying the Nick Chubb or Frank Gore standard to to him, he's going to suck. Like you're, you're, you know, he's just going to be awful. He's not, he's not a startable player or what, you know, Patrick Mahomes does reading the field. You know, you have to understand that it is, that's why Scott's always say, where does he win? Find ways to where he wins because only every 10 years, you're going to find a player who hits all these marks on the broad spectrum of what makes a good player at that position. Um, and you've got to learn how to keep that in in kind of um, perspective. And part of doing that is what you do, Adam, which is you know looking at models, you know looking at her heuristics, looking at how things fit, so that you can say I'm not going to get bogged down by you know something that really doesn't matter. I can appreciate it, but it doesn't matter as much. It you know it, I can sit here and, and talk about the art of running the football. And it's a it's a wonderful conversation, and the aesthetics of it are are fantastic. And I can spend all day doing that, um, and I love spending all day doing it because it, it it's it, it's what I enjoy and appreciate. But really, you know, if you're gonna, we it's like eating food. I mean, like Jason Wood could talk about how great a steak is at a certain you know you know restaurant that has a you know three michelin stars but you know if ha if a hamburger is going to please everybody else even a, a smash burger grilled out on a on a on an old oil drum you know then that's good enough you know even if it, it may kind of offend your aesthetic sensibilities it's funny when i have tried my hand at scouting in the past you know like as a hobby as a sideline um, I usually have the opposite problem of you, where, like, 
from an objective standpoint, every player in the NFL is amazing. Like, just, just flat out, full stop. Like, the worst player in the NFL is a phenomenal player. For sure. And it was probably, like, the third best guy on his college program. Um, and I, I kind of get bogged down in the weeds where I find so many things to love at like uh, in the middle of the range guys and and like like lee evans i was the biggest lee evans fan i'm like this guy is a great receiver and the thing is he is he lee evans was a great yeah. receiver but like so is every other receiver he's not uniquely great or like theo riddick and and joik bell i was like the biggest fan like i love joik bell i know they just yeah. do like they do good stuff yeah. but in fantasy football it's not long term and 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 you know they had a lot of value in fantasy football and i got them at huge discounts and they provided a lot of value because everybody else wants all that sizzle but at the end of the day like you're not going to get like a long-term high-end productive career out of theo riddick and joik bell because they're not special enough you yeah. know like from an objective standpoint from an absolute standpoint wonderful players such a joy to watch from a relative standpoint you know they're they're just guys they're just at the nfl level they're just guys they can find themselves in situations where they produce in the short term but they don't in the long term um and so yeah it's funny you say like you watch frank gore or nick chubb and then you 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 don't love anybody after that whereas like i watch lee evans or joyke bell and then i love everybody after that yeah and i but i went through that too i went through that too but the more i started digging into like the techniques of the position you start to and then you keep watching nfl tape to say what are the best of the best do what does it take to be that guy who has the 10 12 year career at a position that gets beaten up and, and deals with 20 to 30 car accidents you know in every game you know and takes the punishment that running backs do and you when when you start to look at it from that perspective now you're like wow this is the rarest error you know and yeah i still i still like certain guys for i mean there's a guy at fau right now i've watched by larry i think mcmannon or larry mcmannon or something like that who i know is probably not going to be anything special but i have a lot of fun watching because it's that joint bell-esque kind of thing where you you look at him and go, he does some really good things and it's fun. And you can separate that stuff, but at the same time, what can happen is you you can look at players who have who get a lot of love and their their technical and conceptual deficiencies are so apparent to you that you're that you have to be able to find the balance to be able to say, it's gonna take you know Rashad White a couple of years to work on these things and if he does things could work out and then I feel bad for guys like White because I look at him and people are like he's the next greatest thing and I'm going this is not going to be fun for this guy's career because people are going to talk about how overrated he is and that he's you know and even someone like me saying he has a risk of being the next Kalen Bellage, you know which isn't a very good thing for fantasy outcomes but you know I watched him yesterday and he's and yeah the defenses were weaker but when you scout players if you're looking at what they can do within their control to make positive impacts on a game and you're looking at criteria that answers that that is always about answering that that question or looking at that thing doesn't matter if the defense was difficult a good one or a bad one and i thought rashad white within those things he could control did a good job the past two weeks like looked pretty good um, or better than he has. Um, does it mean he's all the way there? He's going to turn into a good running back? I don't know yet. Um, but I feel better than about him than I did. But what's funny is now the public opinion has completely done a 180 on him. And they're like, oh, he sucks. He's never going to be any good. You know, and, and it's like, it's always that way with running backs because of offensive line. If you yeah. get a good running back with a good offense, good offensive line, they're great. If you get a good running back with a bad offensive line, they're terrible, you know. Um, and occasionally you get a great running back with, and it doesn't matter what kind of line he has, you're going to see the skill shine, you know. So that's that's what we had with a guy like Nick Chubb for a while. Um, and, you know, hopefully he recovers and he proves everybody wrong once again. Because I remember coming back to the Senior Bowl with Gene Bramble, 
and I was describing the injury he had because I, I never watched more games of a player than Nick Chubb because after that injury, he looked as good to me as what I saw before. And I thought that I was fooling myself. Like I, I, and I, and I felt like I needed to watch more. And when we got, we were coming back to the senior bowl, I was like, told him about the, the three ligament tears he had. And Gene said, listen, it's, he goes, generally, that's a very difficult surgery because you either tie the, you either tie the ligaments off too tight or you're too loose. And then the back is, oh, when they recover, they can't trust the knee because it's either too tight or too loose and they can't do the things they used to do. So if he's playing the way he is, he had a, he had a great surgeon and a great scenario of confluence of events that led to him recovering in the manner that he did because you don't usually hear, you don't, people don't recover like that. So we'll see, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I'm a big fan of betting on modern medicine. Um, I'm not a big fan on betting on older players just because I feel like, you know, age is a difficulty multiplier. A, a lot easier to do that at 19, 20 than at 28, 29. Um, and yeah, I, I, I hope that we're wrong and I might look and see, especially in leagues with injured reserve slots, you know, if I can get Chubb for a song, it's kind of a fun story to, you know, like, you know, a third round pick as the price of admission to, to, to get a ticket to that show. Yeah. Maybe that's worth considering, but yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not looking good. No, I mean, you think about before the show, I, I just have YouTube running sometimes and it goes down certain rabbit holes. And I was always a fan of like kind of the stories behind the story of professional wrestling. Cause to me, it seemed like it was the, the last of the the American carnivals, the kind of the carny circuit of things. And I always found the stories behind the scenes fascinating about how people play up, you know, get crowds going in terms of what they did. And um, a, a modern wrestler by the name of Kurt Angle, I think a lot of people probably will know who he is, who was actually a former Olympic medalist, apparently won the gold medal and the Olympic, or got won the Olympic trials to earn a spot on the team and then won the gold medal with a broken neck. Like, literally broke his neck. The first doctor told him that not only did he break the neck, but he had two discs that were, like, like touching the spinal cord and said, you're done. Like, you're never going to wrestle again. And then he went to another doctor. The doctor said, well, actually, I could get you ready in six weeks. You're not going to be able to train. Um, but if you really want this, um, I'm going to bring a doctor with you we'll get you you know we'll get you fixed up so that you that you know that you'll be able to function and we're going to shoot you up um with painkillers five minutes before each match um and you won't feel a thing and you'll be able to wrestle probably even more freely than you ever have um because of this he goes but if you do this you're going to be in excruciating pain when the painkillers wear off and he was like in his mind he said i have no choice i i got to do this now he you know it was a great story won the gold medal went through three matches basically or how many he did but and then he went into the wwe and he apparently he broke his neck three more times i think it was you know and now he can't feel you know his pinkies his arms have atrophied he can only do 20 pound dumbbell curl dumbbell curls which is nothing for a former like amateur wrestling champion much less a professional wrestler um and he's considering all different types of things like fusion and some sort of titanium disc but the um you know you think about that and it's like multiple you know at a certain age it's over you know you you, you're not going to be able to heal at the rate that you need to or heal at the at the level of healing that needs to occur, you know, once you get past like 25, 26, you know, your body stops growing at that level. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's, you know, I, I agree. It might be worth the price of admission. I don't know if I'll be doing it, but the, the, but that's because probably on most of my teams, I already have them. So I can just wait it out and see, yeah. I'm not dumping them. I'm not dropping them. Just because I want to, I, I want to tune into that too. But I don't know if I'd buy into it. But 
but I appreciate the. Thought. Yeah, I do a lot of stuff on um, on aging and dynasty, and and um, typically, uh, you know, I have charts for like expected prime years remaining, um, and it's basically like this guy is going to continue being what he is now. If he's a star, he's going to continue being a star. If he's a role player, he's going to continue being a role player. But he's going to continue being what he is now until something happens. And who knows what that something's going to be. But age is a difficulty multiplier. Every year in the league, the risk of something happening goes up. Um, and, and a lot of times nothing happens. Travis Kelsey is a guy who I've been leery of for three years because, you know, he's old. He's he's playing at a high difficulty multiplier. Like anything could happen and just he at, at 33, it's hard to come back from negative shocks. And he's been fortunate to avoid any negative shocks, but he's basically the same age as Julio Jones. And I don't think he's like a better player than Julio Jones was at his prime, but Julio Jones got the unlucky dice roll. He rolled snake eyes and he's been done for years. And Travis Kelsey is going on and still looking like the best tight end in the league and an all pro. And I feel like in an instant, if you're 33, that can be over in a way that when he's 23, 24, 25, it's just not. Yeah, I, I'll end it this way because it just, I just the thought come to mind and it made me laugh. You know, if you if you watched or if you've just been lived long enough to see all all these Rocky movies come out where Sylvester Stallone is a septuagenarian, you know, still boxing and training and doing all these crazy things, I would say the NFL equivalent of that is Adrian Peterson. I would say that you know. But what's funny is it's actually a true equivalent of it in the sense that I think Adrian Peterson could still play tomorrow if he wanted if if a team wanted him, he would still he could still play. Maybe not the way at the level he did, but and and his style of play doesn't fit what the NFL does now as well. But what's funny is, yeah, I mean, like if, if I needed somebody for one game, like Pete Carroll did at one point, and, and brought him in, I, I still think that you could get probably eight to eight to twelve t- quality touches out of him, and 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 do that. So it's a, it, it's just a, it I just, it just came to mind as kind of a weird thought about these guys, you know. I think Terrell Owens might still be able to play. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent convinced <laughs> that Terrell Owens could not you know like play a game or two a full season no at this point yeah. probably not but like yeah that's another guy who like his career was not ended because of lack of ability to contribute anymore his his career was ended because everything's cost and benefit and rostering trell owens comes at a cost yeah and for most of his career the benefit far outweighed that cost you know at the end of the line Suddenly that cost is looming a little bit larger in a way that it's not necessarily with like Tim Brown, who I think was as good of a receiver at 38 as Terrell Owens. But Tim Brown, you know, he's he's adding benefits even beyond what he does on the field, whereas Terrell Owens is a net negative beyond what he does on the field. And and the same can be said about Kareem Hunt to an extent is that, you know, even if we're not even going to talk about the off field, but just that from the past of do you really want to give him a roster bonus or or training camp bonuses. You're gonna to have to spend a fair bit about a lot more money with the veteran minimum to have him on your team when you could wait and see if it's an emergency. That's what all these teams were doing. And yeah, people will talk about, well, what he did last year, but everybody's argument is always the ridiculous yards per carry argument. Uh, and then they'll look at the yards per carry and they usually then conflate that with burst and, and, and acceleration. And I'm just telling you, I know I miss with acceleration and speed sometimes, but if if I'm telling you I don't see a difference between speed and acceleration with a guy or a major difference with it, um, and other people are sitting here going off telling you, yeah, he's lost something, I'm sorry, but like I'll take that person out for a drink and buy him a meal and say, you're full of shit. You know, because he and 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 I say and I, in the most friendly, respectful way I can, but I I think sometimes our eyes fool, our, our eyes fool ourselves. I mean, Kyron Williams is a great example. People were talking about Kyron Williams' 98-yard run against Notre Dame or against North Carolina, his his final year, 
And I remember writing somebody on Twitter on a DM and I said, let's just save this run because I'm going to tell you right now, Kyron Williams probably doesn't even run a 4-5-40. Um, you know, like, you just look at this run and you can tell it was a confluence of events. But people were talking about him as a breakaway running back. And, and so it's just important for people to understand. It's like we do conflate certain things and yards per carry. I can see why you hate it so much from a from a modeling standpoint i just hate it because people start tacking other things onto it don't that don't even like they make assumptions based off of it you know and i'm just right like, i mean yeah. it's it's measuring one very specific aspect of, of running back play yeah. and people look at it as a holistic all-in-one um, but yeah i mean like christian mccaffrey i think is leading the nfl in yards per carry right now six point yards per carry he is not as fast and as explosive as he was three years ago still a hell of a player because yeah. i think the, the primary value he contributes is not necessarily from that speed and explosion but yards per carry over tiny samples can be so deceiving hunt had 123 carries last year we're really drawing sweeping conclusions based on <laughs> like the noisiest stat over 120 carry sample yeah i don't know man i don't know what we're doing here yeah well let speaking of which you know which where i would say the position where nobody knows what they're doing um and and the ones that know a little bit about what they're doing pretty much realize that they don't know what they're doing as quarterback um but you have some models with quarterback that you look at as well and you know sam howell jordan love Jordan Love specifically probably fits one of those models that has been worthwhile to you. So let's explore that a little bit and finish the show. Yeah, I don't really have models with quarterbacks so much just because I feel like um, successful running backs tend to succeed in more similar ways than like successful quarterbacks. Um, I mean, not I think wide receiver has the most diversity. Like the number of ways you can see, succeed as a wide receiver is almost limitless um quarterback isn't quite to that level but it's not like there's a blueprint for like how do you make a successful quarterback in the way that there is at running back and, and obviously there's differences like nick chubb and derrick henry are very different styles of players you know you get just solid stylistic differences but but by and large successful running backs are similar in a way that successful quarterbacks are not so it's very hard to to look at quarterback and say like this is the thing that predicts whether you're going to be good um you know i thought you it was have... white suburban and and espn <laughs> fit espn's formula of like because according to them there's a template you know i'm sorry all right you saw it like 42 percent of the opening day starters this week were black which was awesome that was that was a huge milestone yeah i, I loved saying that and i i mean if you follow me on twitter you've probably seen my rant on you know, racial discrimination among quarterbacks. And people think that discrimination is solved today, that that they will acknowledge, yes, in the past, there have been barriers that black quarterbacks have faced that white quarterbacks haven't faced. And then they'll point to something like a, a single statistic in, out of context, like that 42% of opening day starters were black. And they'll say, but see, we've solved that problem. Yeah, but there's and, a difference. there's a difference between bias and discrimination in the sense of like, explicit you're not allowed and implicit i i i talk over you all the time i don't think you're um you, you know i do things that show a behavior that say i don't think you're as smart as 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 me i don't think you're as capable at your job i don't trust you and there are things that like if a white person dealt with that every day um they they'd probably be crying but that's just my you know yeah and there's still i mean you look at um you look at actual performance black quarterbacks are more likely to be replaced than white quarterbacks for a given level of performance um black quarterbacks uh tend to have fewer negative plays uh that tend to take fewer sacks and throw fewer interceptions and i think a lot of this is adaptive because they know that they are going to be judged more harshly for their negative plays. So they're, they're intentionally setting their risk profile in a manner that avoids them more. Um, you know, it, it's hard to imagine, um, it's, it's getting easier to imagine every year, but it's hard to imagine like a black Jake Plummer. If you had a quarterback who played <laughs> and acted exactly like Jake That's Plummer in every point. single way, except, you know, he had an Afro. Yeah. I don't think that guy's 
lasting as long. And Jake Plummer, he, he's not the best quarterback ever, but Jake Plummer was a really good quarterback. And yes. you put him in good circumstances. He had, he had a long and fun and fantastic career, and I'm so glad that we had an NFL with Jake Plummer in it because, like, the dude is a character, and he made – the league a better place he got treated but like I, he got treated like a black quarterback by mike shanahan <laughs> at the end of his career i will say that at it, times yeah yes, for sure. yeah but yeah I, I think there's this tendency to look at like single number percentage of opening day starters or, or we had you know the first super bowl featuring two black quarterbacks two black starting quarterbacks and it's easy to say that like look we've had problems in the past but we've solved them uh, i usually respond with that and said, you know, those points in the past that you're pointing at and you're saying like, yes, clearly there were problems at this time. Well, at that time, people were pointing at some statistic out of context and saying like, oh, look at all the progress we've made. We've had problems in the past, but now we've solved them. <laughs> and it's hard for me. To, I just think like in terms of base rates, it doesn't seem likely to me that like in the past, we thought we've solved systemic bias among quarterbacks and we were wrong. Today, we think we've solved systemic bias among quarterbacks. And this time, this time, finally, we're right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, 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 we're kind of opening up a whole can of worms now. Uh, black quarterbacks have had it better than they ever have, but I still don't think we've achieved parity. And, and I love – the thing I love most about the history of black quarterbacks is the sense of solidarity and camaraderie. Yeah. Um, there's a, a group called the Field Generals, which is like a, a club of, of black quarterbacks and, and barrier-breaking black quarterbacks in the NFL who, like, they easily could have, they fought the fight during their career, and when they were done, they could have easily said, like, that was exhausting, I'm ready to be done with this. But instead, they've continued to fight it, and they've continued to uplift other black quarterbacks. Um, and they, you know, like, they're holding camps. Cam Newton went to a, a camp for black quarterbacks run by the Field Generals, and um, it, it strikes me so much how much it, it's a brotherhood. You yeah. get guys from completely different eras like Marlon Briscoe and Doug Williams and Warren Moon, and they're all talking about, you know, I didn't think that what I achieved would have been possible, but then I saw the guy who came right before me. And now today I want to, I, there's a kid out there today who doesn't think what his dreams are possible, and I want to help him realize that, that they are. Um, one of my favorite moments, um, one of my favorite John Harbaugh moments, I love him as a coach, but um, when Lamar Jackson heading into 2019 was just so widely denigrated, and then he had this explosive breakout, um, and and there was this moment on the sideline in like his first or second game of that year um, where John Harbaugh said something like, there's, there's young boys who are watching you today who now believe because of what they see you're doing today. Um, and I think it had a possibility to come off as, you know, like treacle or, or, or like, yeah, that's just the coach saying that to his player. But knowing the history of the position, I think John Harbaugh was absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and there's guys who might be quarterbacks 15 years from now who, who otherwise might not have been if not for Lamar Jackson. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we kind of got off the rails. That's there. all right. And, you know, we'll answer this question later because I think that's a good place for us to end, though. And I'll end it with this and say, the saddest part about this, and I think that I'd like our audience to think about, is that when does a white quarterback have to say, I know I'm better than most of my peers, um, but I'm never going to get the opportunity to prove that or show that to the extent without being questioned on a level that that um, other people are not and have to settle for the fact that I know I was capable of so much more but I'm never gonna get that chance you know I'm and not because of talent not because but because of the opportunity the way other people see it like imagine if you know it's not that way for Patrick Mahomes at this at this stage with his career and thankful we're past that but a Marlon Briscoe or a Doug Williams or, you know, they're, you know, or you could even say Russell Wilson early in his career if he didn't have one person or Lamar Jackson. I mean, Lamar Jackson at every turn, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not worthwhile playing the position. You, you should be playing another position. You're, you're going to struggle in a pro offense, even though you played in one of the better pro offensive schemes 
by in terms of the architects of pro offensive schemes and Bobby Petrino um, and oh you're just a runner they framed an offense around you you know but you're still throwing touchdown passes and you know at a high at a pretty high rate at the peak of your career when you're healthy um, and oh you're not smart enough to negotiate your own contract you know and do it well you know I mean that's even beyond what you would expect from a quarterback you know from most quarterbacks but that's you know I think that people don't realize that there are people you know not even just out in in football but there are people out in the world who literally have an un- abundance of talent and every time they get into a situation it's not that they have to prove themselves in the job they're they're doing that like they have to prove that they can do a good job at it they still have to prove that they're worthy of the job that they got um and they're saddled with that whether they want it or not and i think that quarterbacks to some extent black quarterbacks deal with that and at the end of their career there's still some of them in there that are probably like you know i could have i out i out practiced this guy i, I outplayed this guy multiple i outplayed multiple people as the third quarterback on the depth chart and i was never more than the, the third quarterback on the depth chart i had a 14-year career and people were like you should be happy you had a 14-year career in the nfl but there was at least eight years that i really i outperformed people in front of me and never got that opportunity but i should just be happy that i got there and and then also have to reconcile it with but you made a step to help other people who are going to get there now as opposed to like you know no fault to josh allen or zach wilson or you know anybody who's starting in the you know someone who's starting in the league but they don't have to think about that they don't have to go well at least at least i'm helping the next generation move forward they don't have yeah there's some sort of reconciliation of like you know i didn't get where i wanted to go and i had and i had the skills to do it but no one even blink turned turned their head they just looked at me and said yep you're the third guy i yeah i think I think we will have achieved parity when black quarterbacks are able to just be themselves. You know, Josh Allen succeeds or fails, and that's a reflection on Josh Allen. Yeah. Lamar Jackson succeeds or fails, and I think that's a reflection on every quarterback who looks like him who's going to come after him. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, I, I think the biggest evidence that bias is not gone is if you look at I, I, people focus on the top of the distribution that, that Patrick Mahomes is winning MVPs, Lamar Jackson is winning MVPs, and that's awesome. That is an important step. But I think the biggest evidence of bias is those third stringers, and it's the bottom of the roster. And if you look at any stat in history where it's like 90% of 28-year-old quarterbacks who performed at least this well got at least one more season as a starter, I bet if you look at the 10% that didn't, they're almost entirely black. Um, Sean King with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is is an example I use. And this is not ancient history. Sean King was 20 years ago. Sean King was not a great quarterback. He was slightly below league average. Um, but the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense was as good and productive with Sean King in 2000 as it was with Brad Johnson in 2001 and Brad Johnson and John Gruden in 2002. Doesn't matter what measure you use. You look at it. That was, The offense was just as good with Sean King. Sean King was 28. He had been a starter. He had gone to an NFC championship game. He had slightly below league average metrics and he never got another shot again. And that's a very common story among black quarterbacks and a very rare story among white quarterbacks where somebody like Nathan Peterman, um, who I'm sure he has a lot to offer NFL franchises. I don't think he keeps getting these jobs out of dumb luck, but by any objective measure in terms of play on the field, Nathan Peterson, Peterman has been one of the worst quarterbacks of all time. Um, just, just one of the least productive. And people will give him the benefit of the doubt in a way that, that I don't think even still we are yeah. extending to black quarterbacks. A good example who's not gonna, who never got the benefit of the doubt was Vlad Lee, who played at William & Mary, who at one point before a knee injury was literally 
listed by a lot of draft nicks as on par with Carson Wentz and Carson when Carson Wentz was a star at North Dakota State and Vlad Lee um, was an NFL caliber talent I mean you could see it physically you could see how he threw the football and he wound up bouncing around in the CFL he wound up in the XFL and what's funny is he won a game in the XFL where they inserted him in the fourth quarter due to injury and made some really heady plays and now he's basically doing a lot of like um kind of like I don't know how to describe it like Christian outreach type of stuff with like NFL athletes and visits a lot of different places but Vlad Lee was a, a talented guy who just kind of got buried you know in in ways that is very common so yeah it's you know now that we I think that's a good test yeah if you want to see how much progress we're making the day that there's a black Chase Daniel a yes. guy who has a 12-year career Josh five people will argue Josh jo Johnson as an example of that though yeah I guess I mean I can kind of see it um although I think Josh Johnson played credibly in his stint as a starter um I think there are many who thought that Josh Johnson should have gotten more opportunities to be a starter than what he got. Um, yeah, so there's two but, sides but, to that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, yes, I will. I will acknowledge Josh Johnson as an example, but I still think that the examples are just so rare and so far between. Um, you know, like there I, are I could, more I Chase Daniels than Josh Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. Gus Farrat and. Um, I don't know. I I think that that's where the meaningful progress still has yet to be made, not at the top end where today, if you are a Patrick Mahomes level talent, the league is going to shower you with every advantage and opportunity, and they'll gladly feature you on as many commercials, and you can be the face of the league. And that's awesome because, because 20 years ago, that was not the case. 20 years ago, you had major networks hiring Rush Limbaugh to go on national television and say that the media was very desirous to see a black quarterback succeed. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Stonovan McNabb character is not all that. Yeah. Right. Right. And that, that would never ever happen today. And that is tremendous progress and that should be celebrated. That's true. Um, but, but, you know, I don't think we're there yet. No, but I'll say this with all that said, and, and if you're buying what we're arguing here, um, it's a good opportunity to say, good for you, Geno Smith. Good for you. you know? Absolutely. You know? um, so on that note, on that positive note, we're going to end the show. And, you know, we appreciate you uh, tuning in, as always. Adam Harstead on Twitter or X, Pluto, Jupiter, whatever it is called nowadays. At Matt Waldman, you can find us also at Football Guys. And, you know, subscribe to the show. You like this show? Subscribe to Matt Waldman's RSP cast. You can find it at the outlet that you listen to podcasts. Thanks again.